This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him, And to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. It's in your word that we come to learn that we must be completely dependent upon you because there is no way uh, with the deficit of sin that we have that we can ever do anything on our own or from our own nature that could gain your approval. It must be a gift. It must be something that you provide for us, and you have done so in a way that far exceeds anything we could ever imagine. And, Father, with that gift of salvation today, we have such a a treasure trove of assets that you provided in Christ. And yet we know so little about how to access those and how to use those on a day-to-day basis, and so often we still end up trying to face life and surmount the challenges in life with our own resources instead of just coming before you, trusting you, and relying upon you. We clearly understand grace and your provision in terms of salvation, but so often we fall short when it comes to living out our Christian life. So, Father, as we continue our study in Colossians, we pray that you would just uh, give us a greater glimpse and understanding of what we have in Christ and what you've supplied for us and how we can access that and realize those those tremendous blessings and that that uh, abundant life that you have promised us, that we may live even more fully for your honor and glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 16. Today we're starting into a new section in Colossians. And as a result of that, I want to take the time, as I do on occasion, to give you uh, an overview of where we're going, where the Apostle Paul is going from uh, verse 16 down through verse uh, 5 of chapter 4. This is the main body, as I've said before, of the epistle. actually began in 2.6 with the command, "...as you therefore have received Christ Jesus." So walk in him. It is that primary command that really governs everything that we're studying from that verse in 2.6 all the way down through 4.5. All of this is designed to help us to understand how we are to walk in him. And we must remember that there's different elements to that walking metaphor that Scripture uses. It focuses on a fact that it is a conscious effort. It is something that we think about step by step. It's not running in Christ. It's not leaping in Christ. It's not sleeping in Christ, although 
I think that's uh, probably a little more descriptive of some people's uh, Christian life. Uh, it is walking day by day, moment by moment, conscious dependency upon Christ. Another element of this is the fact that this term walking was a term, an idiom often used in the ancient world and has come down even into, into English because of the influence of the Bible uh, to describe a way of life, how a person lives. And we are to walk in Christ. And that command, as I pointed out, brings into focus for us that this is something that is based on our positional uh, reality in Christ, who we are in Christ, that a fabulous change took place at the instant of salvation, one that you didn't feel, one that wasn't part of your experience or my experience, but was part of that transaction that occurred in the spiritual realm that included a, a vast host of, uh, of elements in terms of our spiritual life, including our just, the imputation of righteousness, our justification, our regeneration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and all of the other uh, things that transpired in just an instant of time, but were all related to the work of Christ on the cross and the realization of that and the application of that in our own uh, personal experience. And so... Paul begins this main body, this epistle, with that command to walk in him. And that really was grounded in what we just finished covering in verses 11 down through 16 or 15, that that establishes that, that, that whole foundation. And one of the things that we'll see as we go through this section today is that Paul uses a series of interesting uh, commands all built off of the same word that is often used to describe just putting something on or taking something off. It's, it's the removal of clothes and putting clothes on. So it's the, the spiritual strip and dress commands. But they're really the key here to understanding the, the, the Christian life and understanding how that abundant, rich, full life of happiness and joy and peace that God promised us in salvation is realized in our experience. And so today I want to go through this in terms of this, this overview because I think that once we get the, the broad picture here, uh, the blueprint, the flyover, however you want to describe it, then it helps us to then plug into individual commands that we find uh, in this particular section. Colossians 2, 6 through 8 really lays out the foundation with the positive command in, in verse 6 to walk in him, and then a negative warning in verse 8 to beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and uh, empty deceit. So it begins with a reminder of what we have in Christ, and the emphasis that Paul brings out in this chapter, in this section, is on forgiveness. As we've studied so much in the last uh, two months, the emphasis is on that forgiveness that we have uh, in Christ. Verse 13 said that though we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he has made us alive together with him by forgiving all trespasses. 
And I pointed out that there are two different words that are used in the New Testament for forgiveness. There is the word group based on the verb afiemi, which focuses on the fact of forgiveness, that fact of letting something go not and releasing something, the fact of canceling out a debt. It's used in that way as well. And then the other word, the word that we find here is the word charizomai, which is a word that is based off of the a root meaning grace, and literally it would mean to be graced out or to receive grace, to be acted upon by grace, but it has the idea of uh, and the meaning of canceling out a debt as well, but it focuses not so much on the act as upon the, the motive behind it, which is grace and understanding that. And it's important to understand why Paul and why I spent so much time going through verses 11 through through 15 is because this is at the very core, the very foundation, the very base of being able to understand everything else that's in this, this epistle. Paul, as we studied before, is writing this epistle because a group of false teachers espousing a popular uh, teaching in Colossae had, had, um, had infiltrated the church in some way, and these teachers with, and some of the teachers within the church were teaching this somewhat syncretistic false philosophy, false religious system, whatever it was, and scholars aren't really sure sp- what the specifics are. Next week when we get into some of the details, I'll point out what some of the options are. But we can say a few things about it with certainty. It had a, a, a Jewish component to it. It wasn't necessarily a, the, the result of Judaizers like we have in, in Galatia, but it was definitely had borrowed from a mystical element that, oper- that was found in uh, first century uh, Judaism. We have something comparable today, uh, Kabbalah. And this is a mystical aspect uh, of Judaism, and you know that it's it's popular among a number of celebrities, and it certainly has a, an influence in our culture. And it is this kind of, of mysticism. Uh, the mysticism that, that Paul dealt with certainly had elements that came out of Judaism, but it also was blended with elements from other uh, religions that operated in the ancient world as well as uh, philosophical systems. And it's just that sort of uh, melting pot of uh, metaphysical and uh, religious philosophical ideas that was threatening the spiritual health of that congregation. Same kind of thing happens today, and we'll look at some of the uh, distinctions there. But this is why along with saying that warning them that are commanding them to walk in Christ, Paul then turns around in verse 8, and in just a quick bullet summary statement, he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. And this could even be combined, if it's a hendiadist, to the empty deceit of philosophy. And he doesn't mean philosophy in the, in the more technical sense that we use it, where we would restrict it to maybe just the writings of uh, the Platonists or Aristotle or modern philosophy, whether you're talking about uh, Wittgenstein or, or any of the other modern writers, linguistic analysis and all of the other stuff that goes on today. 
Uh, he's not using it in that sense. He's using it in a much uh, more generic, broad sense, and that is that that everybody has some sort of philosophy of life. Everybody has some sort of idea of what their ultimate reality is and, and what happens after death and a basis for right and wrong. And, and in this sense, it would uh, in, the term philosophy would uh, encroach upon what we often refer to as religions. It would include religious ideas as well. So it's, it's something that is, uh, uh, that's connected there. So he warns. He says, watch out, beware, be careful, uh, lest anyone cheat you, rob you. The idea there, some uh, passages translate this, defraud you. And this means to, to steal something of financial value from someone uh, that is not, not rightfully theirs. And so this false religious system is, is a theft of our spiritual wealth, the riches that we have in Christ. And ultimately, in terms of our future destiny, in terms of our inheritance that we have in Christ, if we fail in terms of living the Christian life today, then what happens at the judgment seat of Christ is we, that is when we see the reality of that theft, the loss of those rewards, the loss of of that future destiny that could have been ours if we had uh, stayed the course, stuck with the Word of God, and been been uh, faithful in terms of our study and application uh, of, of God's Word. We see if you look down to verse verse 16 that we'll see a, something similar uh, stated as and it's at this point between verse 16 and verse 23 that the apostle expands a little bit, and this is the only place where we have any idea of what this false teaching uh, emphasized. He expands a little bit on that. He says, again, let no one cheat you of your reward, that idea of, of, of theft, something that is yours, something that's mine, that is ours in Christ, and then being stolen from us simply because we choose to operate on a false system of thought rather than upon the word of God. So there's that command, let no one cheat you of your reward. And then there are some clues given in terms of this religious system. That is, uh, those who would cheat us take delight in, in a pseudo-humility and a worship of angels and intruding into those things which he has not seen. That is, somebody basically ginning up within themselves their own idea of what lies out in the uh, invisible realm. Vainly puffed up, or just and what Paul says means there at the end of verse 18 is basically being arrogant on the basis of their own sin nature. They're just generating this, this view out of their own arrogance. And in contrast, they're not holding fast to the head. See, they fail to implement the sufficiency of Christ in terms of their, li- their life. In other, and instead, they're looking somewhere else for the solution. So... There are these commands that we find here uh, in verses 16, verse 18, uh, related to this mystical, false teaching that we find in uh, operating in Colossae. Now, in this next slide, what I want to bring up before you in terms of your attention is related to what we see there at the end of verse 18, that, that this is generated by the sin nature. Now, this is a diagram that may be new to some of you. It's familiar to many of you. 
and it is just a schematic of, of our basic sin nature that uh, on the top we have our area of strength, and this is where we manage to be able to do good in our own efforts. We're manufacturing our own morality, uh, and that's our area of strength where we produce human good. The unbeliever does good, but it's not a good that is empowered or created or manufactured through the Holy Spirit. On the opposite end, down at the bottom, we see the area of our own personal sins, which is our area of weakness. And everybody has different areas of weakness in terms of their sin nature. Some people are very prone to sins of worry, fear, anxiety. Other people are prone to sins of deception. Some are prone to emotional sins, anger, resentment, bitterness. Uh, Other people are prone to certain kinds of overt sins, other people are prone to other kinds of overt sins. We're all different, but fundamentally we're all sinners, and none of us, no matter how good we may be, no matter how much we generate out of our own area of strength, none of us can produce righteousness that has value in God's eyes. This is clearly taught in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our works of righteousness righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So these indicate the Uh, different kinds of production that comes out of our sin nature, out of our uh, corruption as descendants of Adam. At the very core of that sin nature is a motivator, and that motivator is our lust. Lust is nothing more than our own self-absorbed desire for something, and those lust patterns change. They can change from day to day. They can change from week to week or year to year or decade to decade. And what may have characterized you in terms of your lust patterns when you were young might be quite different from uh, lust patterns when you're older. And from week to week and area to area, we're we just such a complex mix of uh, of all kinds of garbage in our soul that one day we're operating toward, with a trend towards legalism. Usually that relates to an area of strength that we have where we're strong and we operate on human good. We also have that trend towards legalism in that area. We can't understand why other people, other Christians, uh, can't quite be as moral in some area as we are. But then we turn right around and from our uh, area of weakness... We're just as uh, sinful and corrupt in some other area. And that tends to relate to another trend in our sin nature, which is towards uh, licentiousness. So our lusts tend to drive us, a desire for uh, approval from God, a desire for power, desire for uh, sex, a desire for things, materialism lust, the desire to control our life, control the people around us. All of these are different lusts, and they manifest in terms of these different trends. And in a broad sense, those trends go either in the direction of asceticism or legalism, or they go in the direction of licentiousness, lasciviousness, or antinomianism. Now, for Many of you who've been around for a while, those five words I just used are part of your vocabulary. But every now and then, somebody who's a visitor says something to me like, wow, most people come here and they bring a Bible. I need to come and bring a dictionary. What does licentiousness mean? Gee, I thought everybody knew what that meant. Uh, licentiousness means to treat grace as a license to sin, that because my sins are paid for, I can just go do whatever 
whatever I want to do. It doesn't matter. There's really no uh, control on me. I can sin with impunity because my sins are paid for. Or some people use it in terms of 1 John 1, 9. Well, I'll just pre-bound. I will rebound. That is, bounce back from my sin. I'll just do it ahead of time. I'll confess that sin this morning and this afternoon when I commit it. Already covered. We laugh because we've all done that. That's part of being immature, I think. It's normative. So we have these trends. Asceticism basically is a trend towards uh, emphasizing some sort of uh, uh, a ritual or some sort of aspect of spirituality that if that if I just uh, isolate myself, if I read so many scriptures a day, if I memorize so many scriptures, see, these are good things, but if we do it the wrong way, it's still, it's still sin. The idea that, that uh, we can get involved in even more uh, abstruse ritual, lighting candles and incense. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, they, they, uh, uh, in the early church, took it to uh, unusual heights. And I say that somewhat... Uh, facetiously and punnily because you had what were known as the pillar saints in the early church. And they were called pillar saints because uh, with the end of the the Roman official uh, persecution of the church, people wondered, holy, how in the world can we show ourselves to be spiritual? Well, we're going to have to create our own adversity, some uh, self-flagellated, not psychologically, but literally, they would beat themselves. Some would wear uh, all manner of horrible things in, woven into their uh, into horsehair undershirts that would create physical uh, discomfort and pain. And others would go on lengthy fasts, all to show how spiritual they were. They would isolate themselves out in the desert. And then the pillar saints would go out into the desert. They would combine all of these things, and they would go sit on top of a pillar, as the years went by, the pillars got higher, and they would sit on top of those pillars for uh, weeks, if not months, and Christians would come from all around to go see these holy men and have them pray for them. This was the most extreme form of asceticism and uh, mysticism co- combined in the ancient world. And it's a legalism where there's an enforced behavior pattern, and if you don't follow this set list of do's and don'ts, then you're not spiritual. Attempt to quantify uh, spirituality. So that, that's legalism. Asceticism and legalism go together. Asceticism also crosses over to the other side in terms of mysticism, but I'll, uh, I'll connect that dot in a minute. Asceticism and legalism, when played out to their logical conclusion, produce a moral Degeneracy. Now, most people think of degeneracy in terms of immorality, but the Pharisees clearly depicted a moral degeneracy, wherein their arrogance over their own uh, 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 their own self righteousness and their own morality, they were uh, hostile to anybody who was against them. So, morality can produce its own measure, uh, and that morality can be based on any number of different systems of ethics. I think in the in our world today. There is a there is a uh, pseudo morality on the left, as well as on the right. Political correctness is a moral degeneracy of the left, uh, just as often you find a self righteousness 
a moral self-righteousness on the part of the right, especially among uh, many uh, so-called evangelicals. So those who have a trend towards asceticism and legalism are often uh, very good in terms of human good, and they pro- it produces a moral degeneracy, but it has an impact and a corollary in terms of how they think. And that's what I have in parenthesis on both sides, is someone who is ascetic and legalistic has a tendency to, to toward rigid systems of thought. And so this plays itself out in terms of thinking and in terms of an epistemology, in terms of rationalism and empiricism, creating uh, rigorous uh, systems of thought in order to come to truth. On the opposite end, we have licentiousness. Licentiousness meaning that I'm going to take advantage of God's grace. Everybody does that at some point or another. Lasciviousness, which is uh, related to physical, sexual lust. And antinomianism, which is just a uh, large word for being against the law or any kind of rules or regulations. That leads to immoral degeneracy, which many people have a pretty good idea of. And then, and this produces a counterpart in terms of knowledge, in terms of mysticism. Mysticism just seeks to throw off any restraint from revelation because God's going to speak to me and that may give me new insights that are apart from the Word of God. So it rejects the, the boundaries and the foundations that are given uh, in terms of the Word of God. So you have these come together. So there's also a cross-pollination of legalism with mysticism. And that's exactly what we see in the problem in Colossae, is this cross-pollination of legalism and asceticism in some areas with mysticism uh, in, terms, in terms of knowledge. And so we'll get into some of those details as we go through this uh, coming up. But what is being established here, what's established here is the foundation that we have uh, in Christ. And this uh, comes out when we get to uh, two key verses, two key statements in verse 20 and chapter 3, verse 1. In verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. And that phrase, dying with Christ, is specifically related to what Paul taught in Romans 6, 3 and following, which is referred to as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, when we're identified at salvation with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And chapter 3, verse 1 says, if then you were raised with Christ. See, that's the other part of baptism by the Holy Spirit. We're identified with his death, his burial, and his resurrection to newness of life. That newness of life, that new life is directly related to what happens at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've studied this in this context before, haven't we? Look back at verse verse 11. As Paul started into explaining the foundation that is ours, he says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off, see, there's that first word for removing clothes, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. See, that speaks of something that happened positionally at salvation. That the, the power of the sin nature got stripped away. Its presence is still there, but the power got stripped away in, in relation to the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. So uh, he's explaining this in verses 11 and 12 as, as the foundation of his thought. 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So that, as, as Paul describes the foundation, that which has been uh, using his uh, phraseology in the beginning of verse uh, 7, when he said, walk in him, having already been rooted. That's that perfect tense participle there, having already been rooted. That rooting is what occurs at the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. So I've diagrammed it out this way, that we have both these eternal realities and temporal realities. We trust in Christ as Savior by believing in him, not inviting Jesus into our heart, not walking in aisle, committing ourselves to Christ, any of these other terms that are frequently used today to describe salvation, it is simply belief. Sometimes I just want to pull my hair out when I hear some, some preachers talk on TV and they, they say everything in the world about salvation except believe. But that's the word that's used in Scripture. Why can't we? And I've asked some people this. I said, why don't, we, why don't I hear the word believe? Well, I don't know. I never thought about it. That's what Scripture says. At the instant we believe in him, this is positional truth, God the Holy Spirit identifies us, or technically Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection so that just as in physical water baptism a person is put into the water and brought out in a new state, so we are cleansed by the Holy Spirit and we come out in a new state of having been uh, positionally cleansed from sin and a new creature in Christ. And as, part, as being a new creature in Christ, we have all these different privileges and assets that God has given us. Part of it has to do with the Holy Spirit. Walking by the, we're, we're indwelt by the Spirit, but we also are filled by the Spirit, which can be lost. And so it is that ongoing walk by means of the Holy Spirit that describes the Christian life. Walking by the Spirit, walking in Him are all different terms describing the same basic thing. Now, in Romans 6, we have to understand a little bit about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also... Walk in newness of life. So we have to understand what that newness of life is comprised of. Well, in Colossians 2.20, 21, we have the first reference to that. Therefore, if you died with Christ, that's that uh, identification with his death. If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, then Paul draws the point. Why, then, as do you still live like you did before you were saved? That's his basic point. As though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations, these legalistic regulations which he then uh, recites. In the second if clause, he says, if then you were raised with Christ. So now he's going to focus on the, the, the significant part of this in terms of our newness of life. That's what, what the resurrection has to do with. It ha- the, the death and burial has to do with solving the sin problem in terms of our regeneration and being given new life. 
The resurrection relates to the new life we have in Christ. Jesus said, I came not like the thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. A rich, full life characterized by joy, peace, stability, uh, happiness, a sense of fulfillment in life and meaning because we understand God's plan. It is a reality to us that transforms our day-to-day existence. No matter what those circumstances may be, it's revolutionized by our understanding of that plan of God. Now, Paul then goes on to say, if you just turn over in um, uh, down to chapter 3, he says, Therefore, put to death your members. See, there's another one of those uh, phrases that we are to put to death our members which are on the earth. And then he lists several sins that are related to that. And he says, uh, and then he says, verse 8, in contrast, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these. So we have to look at this distinction between the fact that he says that uh, we have already uh, put off these things in Christ, and now, now we are to put them off. So there is the distinction between our positional reality and uh the reality of our uh, of our position in Christ, our, our experience in Christ, rather living out, walking by means of of God the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse eight, "But now you yourselves are to put off all these things," and he lists various things. Uh, and then, in contrast, he says, "And you have put on the new man." That's happened positionally. It is ours positionally. We put on the new man at the instant of salvation, but we still are involved in a process of stripping off the residual elements of the sin nature in our, in our life. So we are told that on the basis of what is our reality in terms of our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, and in terms of, of uh, what we have in terms of this new life, we can go forward and experience all of these things. Now, the word that we have here, the word group, is based on a core verb called duo in the Greek, which means to set something in place or to dress, to put on clothes. Uh, sometimes it's combined with different uh, prefixes, uh, ek duo, meaning to undress, op ek duomai, meaning to undress or strip, op ek dusis, which means, has the idea of laying something aside, uh, ep in duomai, which means to put something on, and uh, a synonym is, is related to the verb tithemi, uh, either putting something off or removing the same basic idea. Now, if we look at this passage that we have in Colossians, Colossians 2.11, in him we say you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That putting off occurred at the instant of salvation. That is our positional removal of the power of the sin nature. Something also happened with regard to this at the cross. In Colossians 2.15 which we studied last week, 
Jesus was said to have disarmed principalities and powers. Now, this, as I pointed out last time, isn't a word that is used in a military context outside of Scripture. It is a word, though, that is used in uh, removing somebody's trappings of power. And so that's what occurred at the, at the cross in terms of the uh, forces of Satan, the fallen angels. Then we skip down to verses I just pointed out, verses 10, uh, 9 and 10, where to, uh, Paul says, don't lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. That's the sin nature. Because this, the power of the sin nature is broken, he's saying, stop lying. You have a new life in Christ. Live characteristically of that. And then he goes on to say, uh, and a combination to that, you put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So there, we're a new creature in Christ, but that new creature is going to starve to death if we're not taking in the word of God so that the new man is, is uh, properly nourished and grows to maturity. And then in verse 12, the word is used again, uh, different form of the word, and this refers to, again, to experiential reality. Uh, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Now, all of this section builds to a crescendo at the end of verse 17, and it ends with three statements. Verse 15, we're to let the our three commands were to let the peace of, of God or Christ rule in our hearts or in our souls. Verse 16, we're to let the word of Christ dwell uh, in, our, in us richly. And 17, we're to do all things to the glory of God in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that it, it describes this new life that we have, that as representatives of Jesus Christ, everything that we do, reflects upon him. Then in verse 18, down through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is going to take all of this and he applies it to all of our different relationships, to marriage, to wives and husbands, husbands and wives, children to parents, uh, parents to children, uh, slaves to masters and masters to slaves, concluding that, uh, for example, in verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Notice that future focus. And we get cheated of that inheritance if we give in to the uh, false philosophies and false religions. And then as he wraps up this uh, main body of the epistle, he's, he goes back to prayer. As he had covered it in the introduction to the epistle, he says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And then he concludes, uh, goes into his final conclusion, walk in wisdom, toward those who are outside, that is, outside the church, unbelievers, and let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. 
Now, this gives us an overview. What he's talking about is that Christ is sufficient. It's sufficient because of what happened transactionally in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's just not some abstract doctrine. It's something that happened, but it so radically transforms your relationship to your wonderful little old sin nature that you don't have to do what it says anymore. And that puts upon us a demand to live differently. But we can't do that in the flesh. We can only do that if we're walking by the Spirit. And only through the Spirit are we able to truly overcome the flesh, which is what Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and following. So as we get into this and we start into the details next time, we're going to come to understand the, the, the dynamics of the threat. And their threat had certain manifestations, but generally speaking, we have similar threats. And we need to understand the dynamics of those threats a little bit. And then we understand the solution, which is our position in Christ and how that applies on a day-to-day situation whenever we face, face temptation and when we face the battle. But the bottom line is that Christ is sufficient. And because he's sufficient, we can truly have that, that abundant life that he offered that is rich in peace and stability and happiness. But we can't get there if we're just relying upon our own efforts. We have to do it by walking in him with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to once again be challenged by the truth of your word, by the reality of what happened at the cross, and by the reality of what you did in each one of us at that instant when we trusted Christ as Savior, identifying us with his death, burial, and resurrection so that the power and authority of the sin nature was broken and removed. And even though it remains, we no longer are bound to obey it. The issue is our volition. The issue is are we going to walk in the flesh, in the sin nature, or are we going to walk by means of the Holy Spirit? Are we going to walk by means of your word? Are we going to apply your word and let your word have its, have its perfect result in our lives in terms of transforming us from the inside out? Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. There's nothing you can add to it. He doesn't ask for you to somehow do this or that to gain God's approval. That was gained at the cross. The issue now is for you to accept that gift And that's done simply by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. At that instant, you're given all these wonderful privileges and assets, this new position in Christ, and God who has promised to give us this abundant life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today. In Christ's name, amen.